turn your Bibles to Philippians. We're going to jump back to chapter 3 and read beginning at verse 15 and down through chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians 4, verse 15. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal, that it is settled in heaven. Lord, we pray this morning as we look into these final sections in Philippians that you would uh, guide us, that your Holy Spirit would Take us, take the things that we need to hear, that we need to remember, and you would write them upon our heart. Lord, we lift this up to you in Christ's name. Amen. I want to thank you all for having me down. I don't know how long it's been. Three years, maybe? Something, I don't know. Maybe not that long, two years. But um, I made a decision that when I came down that I was... We're going to preach through the book of Philippians, and um, today I think will be the last sermon on Philippians. I hope that you have a a new pastor soon, but if not, and I have the opportunity to come, I'll have to figure out something else to preach on. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love this book of Philippians. Uh, I want to introduce it by telling a story. Uh, there's a new church plant in Powhatan where I live, and they meet in a uh, large, it used to be a National Guard armory. It's like a big gym, so the sound reverberates. And I was there about um, six weeks ago, maybe, and I was up near the front talking with one of the elders there, and I heard in the back there was people just you could tell they were overjoyed there was there was shrieking and yes you could just sense there was a a great a great joy going on in the back and i said to this elder i said uh, somebody's really happy this morning about something and he said yeah that's my son graham he just gave his fiance a ring yesterday and she's showing off the ring and Everybody is just really thrilled because they knew this was coming, but now it's here. She's got the ring, and they're just thrilled with, they're filled, they're filled with joy. And I got to thinking about that because I was scheduled to preach there a couple weeks later, and we were preaching through the book of Philippians. And I got to thinking about how that what's going on there is very similar to what goes in, on in Philippians there, there's a direct relationship between love and joy. This young couple, they're in love. It's a wonderful thing. And the, 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 progressing, the progression of that love is a wonderful thing. And there is a great joy that flows out of that. Uh, and that's what Philippians is about. There are, there are many things in life that we can have joy over. We can get a new car, we can get a new job, we can uh, have a child. They're, they're just wonderful things that can bring joy. But there are also issues in life that drag us down, that drag us away from that. I often say that we marry the most wonderful person in the world, and a few years later we, we want to think, well, I made the biggest mistake of my life. Uh, and that's because life challenges relationships. The, the realities of life challenge relationships. They challenge marriage. And that's what's going on in Philippians, in Philippi. The leadership there, they're, they're, it's a good church. It's a strong church. And yet there are issues there that are forcing those, they're putting stress on those relationships. And the book of Philippians helps us to work through that, whether it's a church, whether whether it's work, wherever you are. The book of Philippians gives us basic principles for working through those things as believers. Now, the world likes to conflate joy and love. And the world tends to think, well, if the joy's gone, then the relationship is over. You see it in Hollywood marriages. You know, they, they, the most wonderful thing has happened. And three weeks later, they're in divorce court, you know, breaking up because the joy is gone. The joy is no longer there. Um, joy is outside of me. And joy, you know, in a marriage, it's, it's your job. Or it's, it's, these are the most wonderful people in the world to be a part of this church. And what we tend to do with things like that, just like 
you know, we get joy in buying a car. We buy a boat. Uh, I've my my tastes have had to be a little less extravagant. I I get joy in buying pens <laughs> or going to Sears in the old days and buying some tools and some wrenches. I go to Northern Tool these days or Harbor Freight and buy a tool, and I find joy in that. And there's nothing wrong per se with doing that, but there is there is a great need for a deeper joy and for a, a, a more foundational joy that we need in order to help these keep these other joys in their proper place and in their proper balance. And that's what Philippians view briefly. Uh, some of you have heard my review several times. Some of you haven't. I just want to go through and begin back in chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, being confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's looking at their salvation, and it began it began because of God. We were talking about Islam. Major difference. You see, Islam, you're trying to reach God. In, in Christianity, God comes down to us. It's God who came to you. It is God who saved you. It's God who began that work, and he's going to complete that work. It's a given. He's going to complete it. But then he prays in, in, in verse 9. He prays that your love would abound. And this theme of love is a big theme in this book. He says, I pray that your love would abound with knowledge and discernment in order that you may approve what is excellent. Let me, let me pull it out here. You might want to turn with me there to Philippians 1. Paul is saying that love, biblical love, is rooted in a knowledge, in an understanding. And that understanding, that understanding has discernment. Discernment is the ability to look at the circumstances on Tuesday and figure out how love and this knowledge of love, how that works itself out. And in Philippians, the knowledge of that love, the knowledge that is the root, that is the foundational root of all of reality for the Christian and should be all of reality for everyone is the work of Christ, where he says in chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. Paul in this book is calling us to think about love in terms of this big picture of what Christ did for us. And we, as he says in his prayer, that your love would abound with knowledge and discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. So there's a, there's a knowledge, there's a discernment, understanding what this means. And there is approval. In other words, there are choices to be made. I make choices. I'm not going to do this. I am going to do that. And it's rooted in that knowledge that undergirds, that teaches us what love is about. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense, Till the day of Christ. The Christian is one who has the big picture. He's living his life not for the circumstances. It's too easy to get caught up in the circumstances of the moment. It's too easy to get caught up in the, in the weaknesses of a spouse. It's too easy to get caught up in the fact that your husband doesn't pick up his socks or your wife doesn't put the cap on the toothpaste. We get caught up in these lesser things and those things dominate our thinking 
and they dominate our relationships, you see. And Paul is calling us to look at Christ and to live for the day of Christ. The big picture. Being being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And go over to chapter 2 just briefly. He, He exhorts them. Let nothing be done through... Well, let's go back to verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. See, he attaches love to this. The unity there is rooted in love. And what does that love look like? Well, let each of you not, not look, look, look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. And what did Christ do? He gave himself. He poured himself out completely. What happened, though? God raised him from the dead. You see, as Christians, and, and I talk about repentance, because that's something we always are needing to repent from, because I'm always wanting to pull back. I'm always wanting to hold back a little bit, as opposed to just saying, here I am. I'm going to serve. I'm going to love. I'm going to pour myself out. Now, why would we do that? Because God raised Christ from the dead, you see? God raised Christ from the dead, and he seated him in the heavenly places next to him. And you are in Christ, and that's where you're headed. That's what's going to be made fully manifest on the day of Christ, that you are with him, and you're going to be a part of that, so that we don't get caught up in in the passions of the moment. We don't get caught up with the resumes you know this and this and that and that we look at the bigger picture of what's happening and so he says in verse 12 work out your salvation with fear and trembling you see the circumstances of who you married the circumstances who you were a fellowship with in the church they're not just accidents god's sovereign over that and god has given you the opportunity to work out your salvation, to learn what it means to live like Christ, to learn what it means to have love, biblical love, you see, that undergirds everything so that my life is not driven by the boat I want to buy or the house I'm going to get or or whatever. It's driven by Christ. It undergirds all those things. Not that those other things are bad, but if, if, there, if we don't have this undergirding understanding of love, then all these other things become idols to us. Now, in chapter 3, Paul talks about his former life. He talks about how that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And that in terms of the law, in terms of the, Pharisee, the Pharisaical definition of the law, he, he was blameless. He, he could count himself as perfect. But what does he say? Those things that I counted for my own righteousness. You see, that's what happens when we start counting and measuring each other. And Well, I've done this and you haven't done that. And so and so is not so good at this. And You see, what are we doing there? We're measuring righteousness. We're measuring people against our righteousness. And Paul lets go of that. We talked about this a few months back. Paul has a resume of one word. He's not, he's not worried about what people think of him in, in this sense. He, he's concerned that he live for Christ and that he pour himself out and that he be known as having given himself for Christ. 
And then in the end of chapter 3, we read these verses. He says, as many as mature have this mind. We've talked about this all the way through. The book of Philippians says a lot about the mind and our thinking. Love is let your love abound with knowledge and discernment. Those are all mental things that we think about and things that we need God's help with. He says, have this mind. And if you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule of the same mind. Join in following my example and note those who walk as you have a pattern. For many walk who I'm told you often and now tell you weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, the thing that's creeping into marriage, the thing that creeps into relationships in the church, this legalistic, self-righteous thinking of where we measure ourselves against others, he's saying that, that that's an enemy of the cross of Christ. So let's look now at what Paul says in his final instructions here to the church. I want to, these nine verses in chapter 4, they're all part of exhortation. And the first three verses are to individuals. He's talking to individual people. He mentions them by name generally in the church. And then in the second part in verses 4 to 7, he's talking about behaviors Things like joy and gentleness and prayer and peace. He's exhorting them to those things. And then in the final section, he's exhorting them to meditation. He's exhorting them to meditate on Christ. And I've chosen that as our theme today, is to meditate on Christ. And we'll get to that in a bit. bit. But let's look at part one. Again, let's read verses one to three. Paul looks at individuals. Therefore, my beloved... And long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Notice that this is the therefore He's just talked about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul Paul is not saying that this church is in the same position as Galatia. Remember in Galatians 1 where Paul comes out, I mean, he's swinging his fist. You know, if, if you pervert the gospel, if an angel from heaven says anything, let him be accursed. Now, Paul, Paul is coming to this gently because there are some there are some people there that he loves. And this is a church that in general is a good church. But things are starting to seep in. And so he addresses this first person in verse 1, my beloved, or the people there, my beloved and long for brethren. In general, the church, my joy and crown. He wants them to stand fast in the Lord. And what does that mean to stand fast in the Lord? Well, you think of everything he said up to this point. He wants them to live like that. He implores Euodia and Syntyche. Notice that these women are exemplary. They are women who labored with him. They labored with him in the gospel. He wants them to be of the same mind. And this is probably the occasion for the whole letter. That these two saints, these two who have given their lives to the gospel 
are having trouble in their relationship. They're, they're, they're not together. They're not of the same mind. You see, they've allowed these issues, they've allowed these resumes to begin to seep into their thinking. And so he, he urges in verse 3, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel. You know, it shows that these things can be subtle. These things can be, these things can be important. And it also shows the importance of our loving and helping one another to think through these issues, to think through these things, because these things can be very subtle. They can deceive us. They can lead us astray inadvertently. But notice these. He has no doubt about where these folks are whose names are in the book of life. These are believers. These are strong believers, but they've allowed this kind of thinking to seep in. So how is he going to help them? How, what does he say here about helping them? That takes us to part two, verses four to seven. He's looking at certain behaviors. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, there, he exhorts them to rejoice. And this may be one of the more famous verses from Philippians, but we often pull it out of its context. And we'll see in a minute another text that we pull out of its context. And it shows the, I think it shows the importance of understanding a verse. It's, you know, it's good to memorize verses. We all did it. We all have done it. We will continue to do it. But we must continually go back and ask, what's the context of this verse? What is the context of this exhortation? Rejoice in the Lord always. Because we tend to see it moralistically. We tend to wake up in the morning and we're in a bad mood. And he said, rejoice. Okay, so I'm going to smile. You know, I'm just going to force my way through the day. And that's not what Paul's arguing for here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You see, he's laid the argument out all the way through the book about his own example. How he's in jail. And... He, he's a missionary in jail, could be the worst possible circumstances, and yet he's filled with joy. Why? Because his focus is not upon himself. It's not his own resume that he's building. It's the gospel. The gospel's going forth. He sees how God is using his own circumstances to f- cause the gospel to go forth. And he's full of joy. And that's what this book, joy here, is not just an exhortation to... You know, bite your lip and smile. It's rooted in the gospel, in the gospel focus that he has. Now, this calls for disciplined thinking. He's remember he said, love would abound with knowledge and discernment that you may approve what is excellent. You see, that, that requires a discipline. That requires... I woke up this morning, and we do. We wake up on a morning, and we're in a bad mood. And, and, you know, all we can think about is the problems with so-and-so, the problems with my spouse, the problems with, you know, we, we just get carried away with the problems. How do, we, how do we do that? We go back to the gospel. 
We go back to what God is doing. Lord, again, repentance. Lord, here I am and full of this self-righteous criticism. And I want to find fault with this and this and this and this. Give me this gospel perspective. Give me this gospel, Lord. You've called me here to lay my life down. Give me the belief. Give me the real deep belief that you are God. That you raised the dead. And, and the circumstances I'm in, you are going to redeem and use those for your glory. I need that. You see, that, that's the context of rejoice. Then verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. Strength. I like to define gentleness as strength under control. He's saying, let, let people look at you and see gentleness. You know, so often we wake up in a bad mood and we want to start throwing shoes and fussing and whatever. We want to let people have it. He's saying, no, let, be known by gentleness. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 2 where he says, we are a fragrance. We are fragrance to those around us, a fragrance of life to some, a fragrance of death. But we are a fragrance. And why are we to be that way? Because the Lord is at hand. You see, it's this big picture we talked about of the imminency of the day of the Lord. We are those who are living. We're in the present, but the day of the Lord is at hand. You say, well, this is a long life and this is a long thing. Paul talks about his own suffering. He said the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that follows. You see, that, that's a perspective we need, and that's a place of repentance, Lord. I've lost that perspective. I think this is all it is. This is it right here. No. He also speaks of his own suffering as momentary light affliction. See, that, that, that's a gospel perspective. That's a perspective of love, of understanding what Christ has done and is doing. And it's a place for us to repent. Lord, I'm not very good at this. I don't do this very well. And then he says, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer, in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is the antidote to anxiety. Prayer is what helps us. See, it's prayer coming, not, Lord, this person, I'm, I'm, this, I'm doing this and I'm working so hard and they're not pulling their weight and get them. No, that's not the kind of prayer. It's, Lord, yeah, maybe they're deficient here, but I, I need to get rid of my right, self-righteousness and my arrogance. Help me here. Help me, maybe you're calling me to pick up their end of the load, you see. You see, I, I often say, and I think it's true in marriage, the reason people like to leave a church is the reason they ought to stay. You see, you come to a church and you get to know people and you realize, well, this per church has got the, this fault. You see, God may have opened your eyes to a certain defect in the church. But that's why he gave gifts in the body. And that's why he's given people discernment to see, wow, you know, we need to do this. Perhaps God's calling you to do that, to take it up, you see. That's the, that's the work of Christ. He gave himself away to take up. Now think, too, about anxiety. What do we often get anxious about? 
We get anxious about relationships. I don't know if you've thought about anxiety, but think about it in terms of relationships, in terms of people. It tends to be people who make us angry, people we get upset with. Look at the Psalms. Look at the Psalms and the prayers there. Almost half of the Psalms are laments. David and others are coming before God and they're laying out their trouble, but there is a conflict there. In fact, almost every psalm of the 150 deals with some type of conflict, references conflict. The laments come in the midst of conflict, and they're crying out to God. And what happens in these laments is that God answers the prayer. He doesn't fix the problem. He changes the person. You see, one of the things we need and one of the things you need is to know that you have a God who's bigger than you. He's bigger than history. He's bigger than the moment. And he wants to be there with you in the moment. You see, he's not there as your genie in a bottle. He's not there as Santa Claus. He's there as God. And he's going to do, our God is in heaven and he does what pleases him. But he doesn't leave his children to hang out to dry. He changes them. He he lifts up their vision of who he is. He gives them joy and he gives them peace in the midst of anxious moments. He's a real God with real salvation in the present moment. It's not a health and wealth gospel. It's the reality of the power of God to work in his people through the Holy Spirit. And the Psalms are one of those means by which he uses that. To learn to pray those Psalms and to lift them up before God. And notice the result of that. It's peace. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind. The result of this kind of prayer is a real peace. It's a real peace to see God. You know, it's a wonderful thing to have an issue with somebody and and you're wrestling and you say, Lord, I'm full of self-righteousness, but I can't get rid of this anger. I can't get rid of this upset. And you cry out to God. Maybe even for days you cry out to them. And then you meet the person. And what happens? You're joyful. You can bless them. (laughs) You can be kind to them. And you walk away and you say, how did this happen, Lord? How is Because I've been wrestling so much with this thing. How, how is it that I can be sweet to them? The Lord says, yeah, that, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. That's God working in you. You see how your faith grows and you realize you have a God who guards you, who protects you. Psalm 2 says, the heathen rage, the people's he who sits in the heavens laughs. He speaks here of the God of peace. We serve a God of peace. He's able to bring peace to your heart in the midst of difficult circumstances. He can guard your hearts and mind. He can guard the deepest parts of your being. And he does that as we come to him humbly. Now, how are our hearts and minds girded? That's our last section. What does he do? What are the practical effects of that? Well, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things 
are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. And if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice the finally. This is his summary, I think, of the whole book. He's pulling it all together here. But I have a problem. You, in verse eight, and verse eight, he talks about things that are true and noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, praiseworthy. What fits this category? Now, just like we we talked about earlier, rejoice in the Lord. We kind of we come to it with a brainstorm, and we kind of put our own interpretation, pull it out of its context, and we interpret it, you know, a way that suits us, and it usually ends up being badly. And I think this verse is one of those examples. When we when we brainstorm, well, what's he talking about? True and noble and just and pure and lovely. He must be talking about the beach or flowers or mountains with the fall leaves or a concert. Those are all true and lovely and good report. Yes, they are. But that's not what he's talking about here. What has he been talking about in this book? I'm not suggesting that any of those things are wrong. But I am saying if if that's where you find your peace, if that's the bottom line, you can go on a nice vacation. You can go to the mountains. You can go to the beach. And you can come home as angry and as anxious as you left. Because there's no magic in those things. There's nothing wrong with those things. What is What in this book is lovely? What is just and noble? and pure, of good report, of virtue, and praise. I submit to you that it's Christ. He's talking about Christ. He's saying when you're in the midst of these things and you're having difficulty, meditate on Christ. He is the one who knew how to love. He's the one who gave his life away. He is the one whom the Father raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in heaven. And when we are wanting to pull back and when we are wanting to let somebody have it, you need to think about what true, noble virtue, those things. This points out the centrality of our thinking and our knowledge. And I say to people often, you need to think about what you think about. And when you find yourself in one of those moments where you're listing all the faults and the flaws of the church or your brother or your spouse or all of those things, think about that. Think about that. And then I say, thoughts make good prayers. Bad emotions, bad thoughts make good prayers. How do you know that? Read the Psalms. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. The psalmist is coming and he's laying out honestly. Think about Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's thinking God has forsaken him and he lays it out before the Lord. Why are you so far away from my groaning? See, He's coming to God honestly and he's laying it out humbly before him. Now, we might tend to say, well, we shouldn't pray like that. Dear friends, this Christ, it's Christ on the cross. 
at the most difficult moment of his life, what is he doing? He's laying out what he's thinking right there before the Father. Lord, this is where I am. This is the difficult circumstances. You see, when I find myself caught up in these ways of thinking, and maybe even I've sinned there, the key is to go back and to humbly lay it out before God and to confess our sin. To confess before God. To meditate. Lord, help me to see the nobility and the purity and the virtue of who Christ was. Help me to be more like that. I need, I need your help. Because you know, in and of myself, that's not me. It's not me. That's Christ. You see, in chapter 1, it is God who began a good work in you. But it's also God, he says there in verse 11, it is God who's going to complete it. Even this taking up love and loving with knowledge and discernment, it's through Jesus Christ. It is Him who's going to do that. And He is most pleased when we come before Him humbly and lay out these matters. In conclusion, let me say this. This morning, we have by the Holy Spirit ascended into heaven in the presence of God seated on his throne on Mount Zion and in the presence of Christ, seated at the Father's right hand. We've offered sacrifices of praise, confession of sin, offerings, and now we've listened to his word. We cannot be but humbled by his word. Remember the words of Isaiah 57:15. For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and a holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God is high and holy and he wants you to know him and he wants you to know him better. The pathway to that is through humility, through contriteness, confessing our sins, What does he do to those who come with a humble spirit? He gives them joy. Beloved, let us meditate on these things. Let's pray. Our Lord, those things that we know not, we pray that you would teach us For those things that we have not, we pray that you would give us. And the things that we are not, we pray that you would make us. We look to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.